Hi, I'm Ben Weaver-Hinks. I'm Zachary Fall. And I'm Nadia Cavell. And you're listening to Migratives, the podcast championing migrant creatives in the UK. Today we speak with Saeed Halim Najibi, a performer and participation assistant with Phosphorus Theatre. Originally from Afghanistan, Saeed came to the UK as an unaccompanied child refugee and today shares his story with audiences in theatres, schools and other settings across the country. Saeed speaks with us about his journey to the UK and experience of the asylum system, his work with Phosphorus and his hopes for greater representation in the industry. Saeed, thank you so much for joining us today on Migratives. Thank you for having me. We're really excited to have this conversation today. I think we're all really intrigued by the work that Phosphorus is doing and also your personal story and journey to where you are today. I know that you were born and grew up in Afghanistan and that you've spoken about some of the misconceptions that people in countries like the UK have about Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about your upbringing there and your memories of the country? Yeah, I mean, Afghanistan is without a doubt a beautiful country. And if peace was there, it would have been definitely one of the most popular destinations for holiday in the region. So I am from the eastern part of Afghanistan, a city called Jalalabad, which is Nengraha province. So I'm from a village not far from Jalalabad city. I had a normal life. I grew up there and as a kid, I went to school, which was about 30 to 40 minutes walk from where we lived. And then after school every day, you know, there was this amazing ground for playing cricket. And that was something that we always did as kids and we loved doing it every time, you know, we were off from school or after school, we would play tape ball cricket with our friends. So we had cows, we had farms, we had land, and I would help my dad with that as well. So I would go to the lands or to help with, you know, doing things for cows when I was off school. And yeah, you know, amazing weather where I'm from. That meant, you know, we could play cricket, you know, 12 months a year, (laughs) which obviously you can't do in in the UK. And, you know, (laughs) and now living in the UK and having so much love for cricket, it's only two months or three months season that we get here, really. So it's it's not good enough in that sense for me. You know? So you must be much better at cricket than the Brits because you got so much more. <laughs> <practice>. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah. If if it comes to tape ball cricket, definitely I will be anyway. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, uh, the difference is, you know, over there we had like our own form of cricket, basically. You know, where you play with the softer ball and you play with different rules and most of the time create your own rules. <laughs> Whereas, you know, over here, when when I started uni, I started playing like proper cricket. It's just so different. So, yeah, definitely, you know, something I love doing. And tell me about school a bit. What was your experience of school like? So the system is we do 12 years of school and then after that you move on and you go to university. So I started when I was six years old. And yeah, in the beginning, we didn't have a building. So we would just be putting stuff on the floor and like sitting down on the floor and just watching the teacher teaching us. And yeah, we would go in six days a week. 
so Friday was the day we had off or weekend mm. and yeah so the difference is we would go half day rather than you know nine to three fifteen you know which is the system here we would start at eight and then we would finish at one mm, right rather than going till three but we had six days school and we had subjects that you would have here so we had maths chemistry geography and all those normal subjects that you would have at school but the other big difference was that it was only boys school so we didn't have any female teachers we didn't have uh, female classmates so that was a huge difference to when i came here and started school here Mm -hmm. yeah i'm sure so obviously today you are a performer and you tell your story at events and venues across the uk what was your early experience of storytelling and of art in general and was it something you were drawn to at an early age no not not really because you know coming from a country like afghanistan we don't really have that much engagement when it comes to theater and arts and performance especially from the part of afghanistan that i come from so we didn't really get the opportunity to do all these things or to be introduced to these things, you know, to performance and storytelling hmm. and all those things and that comes with it. And in Afghanistan, the only form of art or live performance I'd been to was a live circus. And that was it, really. So, yeah, when I came here and then I went to school, I got introduced to drama and then given the experiences or the things I've been through, I always wanted to speak about these issues that we speak about in phosphorus um, right now and all the work that we do with phosphorus this was something that i always had in mind and i always wished that you know i could get the opportunity to do so and i think that was the starting point basically and when you think of afghanistan what are the primary memories you have in terms of sight sound smells what is most sort of evocative to you Oh, so many things, you know, because I still uh, feel like Afghanistan is home. And, you know, the smell of delicious food made by my mom and the lovely bread baked every day in our courtyard where we had an oven. That smell always in my mind, you know, mm-hmm. whenever I think of home and think of Afghanistan, you know, the smell of fresh bread being baked every day, mm-hmm. especially in the evenings. And yeah, the sounds, you know, where I'm from, as I said, is a village. It's a very lovely place. We have a lot of birds. So in our house, we have a big cage where we have little budgies. So we have about, I think, 50 of them in this big cage in our yard. And the sound of that comes in my mind as soon as I think of home, you know, they're always singing and flying around in that big cage. And the kids, playing and shouting and also crying obviously (laughs) so yeah and the delicious food the fresh delicious food that we get in Afghanistan you know in the UK mostly it's stuff that is not fresh you know you get Mm -hmm. frozen stuff whereas in Afghanistan we would go to the fields and we would pick okra and bring it home and cook it we would go to the field mm. and we would pick tomatoes and bring it and onions and so on you know so it mm. would be freshly made food every day mm. that is something that i cannot forget about and it always comes in my mind when i think of home yeah wow that's so evocative so 
I know that at the age of 14, you became a refugee and traveled through many countries before settling in the UK. If you can, could you tell us about that period of time and your journey to reach this country? Yeah, I mean, I had a very, very long journey coming from Afghanistan. You know, I went through different countries, taking different modes of transport. It took me eight months or about eight months to get to the UK. I used boats, lorries, as well as walking to get through places. I went through Iran, Turkey, Greece, Italy and France and the UK. When I got to Greece, I was put in a detention center for about five months. The crime behind it was just being someone who is in search of their human rights basically and that was a crime for locking us in for five months and some people got locked in for 12 months or even 15 months in that place you wouldn't get proper food you wouldn't get proper sleep the living situation there was worse than keeping animals Mm -hmm. in the first place we were in a room i remember with around 70 people and not a very big room, I would say 10 meters by 15 or even less than that. And the toilet was in the room oh, wow. without a door. So every time you use the toilet, you would have to ask someone to guard you, basically. Yeah. And you can imagine in that tiny room, not much space for sleeping. So it was basically a situation where we would sleep in turns. And that was the place where we stayed for about two weeks. And then after that, they moved us into a bigger place where things were a bit normal, where we had our own bed and showers and stuff. When you were in Greece at the detention centre, how were you being communicated with at this time? Who was in charge? Who was communicating with you? What language were they speaking? Very good question. I mean, that was one of the issues. It was just unknown most of the time you know we we didn't know what was going to happen to us and we didn't know we didn't get things explained to us like this is why you're here and then after this many months or this many days you're going to be released or you're going to be able to go out and do things we got locked up and basically not knowing what will happen and when things will change everybody just hoping for the day where the guard comes and knocks the door and says say you'd come you're free to go so that every day basically every night before going to bed this was the thing we prayed for literally every single person in that room that you know in the morning someone comes knocks the door and takes us out so yeah basically unknown situation and you know not knowing what will happen in the future but some people there so the question about you know the language barrier in the second place, I mentioned we were moved to a bigger place. In that place, we had people who had been there for about 15 months or two years, even three years. And those people, because of you know living or staying there for that long, they could speak a bit of Greek, which meant sometimes if somebody was ill or if something happened to someone, they could communicate or call the guards and explain. But yeah, apart from that, there was wow. no interpreting system or anything like that. Wow. And the others who were being held with you, where were they from? Were a lot of them from Afghanistan? Yeah, all across the world, basically. So we had people from, yeah, literally all around the world, all the countries that refugees come from. 
The second place that I went to, we were about 30 people in kind of one section. And out of those, I think 18 of them were from Pakistan. And I think only four of us were Afghans. So then we had people from African countries as well as the Middle East. Hmm. And are you still in contact with any of these people today? Do you know what's happened to them? Yeah, so... You know, social media, big up social media, <laughs> especially Facebook. It meant, you know, we could add each other on Facebook when we were released. And one of them, actually, we travelled together, not from Greece to Italy, but from France to the UK. And we got to the UK at the same time. And he lives in Harrow, an office London, yeah. And now he's a barber, so I do go to his barber shop sometimes <laughs> for a free haircut. Wow, amazing. You know, if I'm out of money, I, I just go and, and he gives me a free haircut. So, yeah, that's one of them. And some ended up getting to different countries around Europe. So I still have them on Facebook, but mm. we don't chat or have regular contact right now. Hmm. And when this was going on, I mean, you were a young teenager. And I think for many people of that age in this country, their problems are like, what GCSE subjects am I going to choose? Or, Mm. you know, Mm. you must have been terrified at times. Yeah, believe me, you know, it's we would have nightmares like you know literally people including myself waking up in the middle of the night and shouting and screaming and that was the situation but I guess what made us tough or you know resilient enough to get through it was the experience of getting to Greece and coming all the way from Afghanistan you know we had to be we had to be tough we had to be resilient you know it wasn't a skill we chose to have but I guess it came about you know we we just had to be and yeah it's obviously illegal to put someone underage firstly with people who are over 18 you know with adults basically Mm. and and that was something that they didn't care about either so a lot of human rights violations happened in that place but there was no one to speak about it or even care about it Mm. And when you left Afghanistan, did you set out on your own or did you set out as a group with other people your age? It was four of us from our place. So Mm -hmm. I was with four other people, but they were all my age. So we weren't accompanied by an adult. Yeah. But we had each other until we got to Greece. But when we got to Greece, we were separated. Oh, wow. Everybody kind of went their own way because that's how it works, you know. You don't get to stay with the same group throughout Mm. your whole journey. You always Mm. get into different groups and new people come and people go, you know. Right. So, yeah, after five months, then I got the chance to leave Greece and to Italy. And, yeah, from there to France, where I stayed in Calais. So I stayed there for about two weeks Again, not very good living conditions, you know, Mm. or conditions where you can stay, especially the time. So I came in February, so you can imagine the the coldness and the weather around that time. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, snow everywhere and we had tents where we had to keep warm by using old blankets or rubbish, basically. But yeah, luckily, I was able to leave that place after just two weeks. Where for a lot of people, it would be 
longer, way longer than that. Hmm. So yeah, then I got to the UK and here I am. Wow. I know that refugees in this country and obviously elsewhere face a great deal of hostility and that's both systemic and personal. What was your experience when you arrived in the UK? We do face a lot of challenges coming to the UK. When we get to the UK, some people or most people think, oh, the journey is over now. But we don't realise that there is a start of another journey, which is navigating all these different systems put in place, you know, and this hostile environment created by the Home Office. But I guess I was, you know, one of the lucky ones because I was in care given that I was underage, under 18. So when you are under 18, you get put into the care system where you have a social worker and where you get people to support you through different things or different journeys. But for, you know, people who come here as adults, I think it's even more challenging. And most of the time, again, the human rights are violated you know they get put into detention and they get detained and in some cases they get removed back to their countries where you know they have to face the same story again but yeah still you know being in care doesn't mean that I was perfectly fine I still had to navigate a lot of or get through a lot of challenges yeah including the asylum system so I had to fight the Home Office for seven years, you know, which is not good. As you said a few minutes ago, it was the age where, you know, you think of like getting good grades and getting to school and getting good GCSEs and so on. But instead, I was fighting the Home Office for seven years. And so that, you know, very disappointing. And then the care system... Yeah, like I do appreciate a lot of their support and most of their help and most of what they have done for me. But again, there are many negative sides to it as well, depending on who you have on your case. So one of the things that I've experienced is people having low expectations from us, low expectations just because we are refugees, just because we're asylum seekers. Mm. So when I finished school, I like I always wanted to do education and to educate myself. And education is something really important for me and something really important in my family, even back home. So I didn't get proper advice after finishing, you know, my school and my GCSEs. And I went to do a course that wasted two years of my life. And nobody told me, despite getting some very good grades in my GCSEs, nobody advised me properly, you know, this is the way for you. And that meant I wasted some time. But luckily, I had some good people around me at the end who guided me through. And now I'm at university. But yeah, a lot of challenges, so many challenges. But the biggest one for me was, you know, the asylum system and the home office. Mm. Right. So Sayed, you are now one of the core members of Phosphorus Theatre, which is a charity that makes socially engaged performances with, for and by refugees and asylum seekers. Could you tell us more about 
how Phosphorus came to be back in 2015 and how you first got involved yourself. So Phosphorus started from a housing project again in Harrow, where some of the boys from the company lived in that house. So it was a shared accommodation. So it started from there, you know, the guys wanting to tell the stories of their journeys and in the UK and going through so many challenges. So we started from there and I, yeah, I found out through a friend who lived in that house and I got involved. And then we, in that living room, we started just playing games and telling stories and experimenting and having drama workshops. And for me, when I heard about it, I was like, you know, definitely something that I'm passionate about. I am not an actor or I don't have much experience of acting rather than just having a subject at school. But the topic that is being discussed here by the group is something that I'm interested in talking about. So I was like, Mm. I want to do this. I want to be involved in this. So yeah, we went from there and we've had our first show called Dear Home Office. And we took it to Edinburgh Fringe Festival, amazing memories. (laughs) And we met so many amazing people and people who do so much amazing work to support the refugee community, as well as people from the refugee community. And yeah, we did about 25 performances of that show, I think. And we were shortlisted for Amnesty International Freedom of Expression Award, which was very good. We got shortlisted for that in Edinburgh, where you get thousands of shows going on at the same time. It was a big achievement for us, given that it was our first show as a company. So yeah, then we did another show called Dear Home Office Still Pending. And then our latest one was called Deep the Shock Heroes, which we took to different places in the UK. We had about 50 performances of that one. We had some amazing reviews. And yeah, again, you know, met some amazing people throughout. And yeah, now last year we became a charity and I am... As well as being one of the actors, I am one of the trustees as well on the board. Right. So yeah, great achievement for us as a team, as a company, you know, starting from where we started and where we are now, you know, yeah, for it's sure. been an amazing journey. That's very, very impressive. And did you expect it to get here to where it is today when you first started it? What hopes did you have for it? Nah, not really. You know, <laughs> it was beyond my imagination, I would say. Very beyond now. It's, yeah, it's incredible. As I said, you know, I just wanted to be on stage and tell my story. And I think that was the case for everyone else mm. being involved. That was the aim, basically. That was what we wanted at that time, you know. Yeah. Obviously, couldn't really imagine getting this far. Well, congratulations to all of you. It's a fantastic achievement. Thank you. So on the company's website, Phosphorus described their work as making theater against the odds, facing great and changing barriers and obstacles which are out of their control, such as the actor's housing, health, and ongoing asylum claims, all Mm. of which are reflected in the shows. Now, could you expand a bit more on these issues and also on the company's process in creating these shows? Yeah, I mean, you know, we feel like we are a family 
all the people involved in the company. Um, we are so much involved in each other's lives. And for us, what goes behind the scenes, I think, are more dramatic than what we show <laughs> on stage. So, you know, I'll give an example of the challenges that we have to face while doing the work we do. So when we went to Edinburgh for the second time, no, the first time, actually, mm -hmm. just before going on stage and doing our third performance of the week, I think, yeah, I had a phone call. I picked it up. I was like, oh, it might be urgent. So I picked it up and it was my social worker. And she was telling me that when I came back to London, I had to move. I had to move from my foster family because I was turning 18. Oh. So, you know, imagine just before going on stage, you have a news like that. And it's like, how do you digest that? And then how do you forget about that and put on your performance mode, you know? Oh. And even tougher challenges than this, sometimes getting a letter from the home office before a show, you know, or like finding out about our immigration stuff just before going to do a show it's all the challenges and these are the things that we are involved with and things that you know we support each other with mm -hmm. we celebrate our highs we celebrate our achievements as a family always as well as you know being there for each other when something is wrong or something is not the way it should be so you know proud to be a member of phosphorus family and someone who has that that luxury and in terms of making shows we as i said we know so much about each other's lives which means our director and our writer has more knowledge about how to write for each one of us but mm -hmm. when it comes to making plays we get together we do an r d you know, the normal process that you do for making a show. So we do an R&D maybe a week or a weekend there and a weekend here. And then we get things put together and we come up with ideas together. We come up with things we want to talk about in our shows together as a team. And everyone has the opportunity to have their inputs and give their opinions on different things, on different subjects, different topics we, we want to include. And then... Yeah, we give it to the writer, who is also the director, Don Harrison, mm. and then she writes it, and she gives the script back to us, and yeah, and we kind of go from there. Fantastic. What kind of support has the company received over the years in making these shows? Obviously, it's now become a charity, but until then, did it receive backing? Do you know about that aspect? Yeah, I think... We have been very successful in terms of things like securing funding because, mm. you know, it can be really, really challenging to secure funding for things like this. So I think we have been really successful, you know, in 2019 or 18, we had three or four sets of fundings, you know, successful funding applications. Wow. Which, which is, yeah, again, not normal for a lot of companies, but somehow... You know, I guess it's the work we do that makes people interested and makes people believe in us. So, yeah, I think we have been good so far with that side of it. And, you know, the Arts Council, as well as some other amazing organizations have been supporting us throughout. That's great to hear. And that's very encouraging to know that companies like yours do receive that kind of support. Yeah, definitely.
So Phosphorus also offers several types of workshops, which you regularly lead yourself. Some aimed at refugee youth groups, some at schools, and some at professionals, such as teachers and social workers. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us more about these workshops and also how they came to be? Were they part of the initial idea or came later? Yeah, I think it started later because in the beginning, we didn't really think of this type of work to go with our acting work. So for me, for someone having the experience of navigating the education system and the care system, I think doing these workshops for people like social workers and teachers and professionals who work with people like me, who work with people who come to the UK as refugees and asylum seekers, I think it's, it gives them a different side of things. Mm -hmm. which they don't normally see in their professional work or the work that they do with their clients. You know, me going there, sitting in the room as someone who's had the experience and talking about it and telling them, you know, these are the things that you should do or these are the things that someone like myself will find helpful, I think is really important. And that's, mm. I guess that's why we wanted to do more than just being a theatre company, you know, we want to challenge these things where people don't get enough support or don't get the right support that they need in order to achieve what they want to achieve in their lives. Right. So what do you do exactly in those workshops? What do they consist of? So when we first started, we went in with kind of introducing an imaginary character. So it's based basically around drama. Right. Mm -hmm. so drama is the core, basically. And then we get participants to do role play and do little group works on different subjects and then share their ideas with the group. And then we get to put our input. So me as someone who has the experience, I would get the chance to then have my input on mm -hmm. top of, you know, what they think about different things and what they say about different things. So it's that. So we do role play and we make this imaginary character where they think about it. And it's someone who's new to the UK and who has to go through these different things and different situations and how they would deal with it. So, yeah, so it's basically an educational, informative type of workshop. Mm. We do them for ESOL students and for refugees as well. Right. Of mainstream school students, we have a different plan or a different structure. But again, based around drama. Right. So when it comes to refugees, it's about giving them the confidence to speak and to be themselves and also talking about human rights and informing them about what is their right and what they can expect from certain people in their lives and what is reasonable and what's not reasonable, you know. Right. And like having fun at the end of the day, you know, that's that's the main focus for them to have fun and be themselves. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I have seen doing these workshops is like someone like me going in a room full of refugees or newly arrived people to the UK and they see me and I tell my story and I introduce myself and I say I came to the UK as an unaccompanied minor just like you or like similar to the experiences you have had, I think gives them a motivation or something to look at. Like, look, this person came just like me and here he is, you know, leading a session. So they're like, okay, I can do this as well. I can achieve in my dreams and my goals as well if I work hard. For sure. 
So you do a lot of public speaking. You became Phosphorus Theater's lead spokesman, and you've taken part in multiple radio, TV, and print interviews, including some with Sky News, The Stage, BBC, Times Scotland, and even the Canadian magazine L'Actualité. You also write articles. You've written for publications, including the Huffington Post and Metro. Mm -hmm. Now, is this also something you'd imagined for yourself before? And how much has your experience with Phosphorus Theatre informed you as a public speaker and now as a writer? Yeah, definitely not something I imagined again, you know. Mm. But working with Phosphorus, I think, increased my knowledge about the community and the challenges we face. So before I started working with Phosphorus, I only knew about my experience or the experiences of my friends or people mm. who I had in my life. Whereas working with Phosphorus gave me the opportunity to meet people firstly from all around the world and with different experiences to what I have had. Mm -hmm. You know, someone coming from an African country might have a different experience to someone coming from Afghanistan or the Middle East. But mostly the experiences are common or most things are very common in the community. So, for example, sometimes when we have a show, at the end of the show, we have this thing where we allow the audience to come up on stage and talk to us, especially the refugee audience, the type of audience that we really love and love having all the time. We give them the opportunity to come and talk to us, and sometimes they take pictures with us, which, which makes us feel like celebrities. <laughs> but yeah, so that means we hear about these things and they tell us mostly like, oh, you just told my story. When we hear that, that's like, oh, hey, this is not just about us. This is something that applies to all these people in the community. So I guess what we do is in solidarity with all the people in the refugee community. So it's given me the opportunity to speak beyond my own experience. Mm. Well, you've said that you are passionate yourself about public speaking in other interviews. Is this something that you seek to do more of outside of Phosphorus? I do get the opportunity to do it sometimes, yeah. So recently, I was involved in a project with an organization called Privacy International. Mm -hmm. So yeah, sometimes I do get the opportunity to work with other companies. So it's not public speaking, but it's more like acting type of work. So I had the opportunity to do an audio book for Audible, right? which was about unaccompanied minors, basically. And yeah, I was asked to narrate it. Great. Now, besides your acting work, you're also passionate about environmentally friendly energy, and you're currently studying sustainable energy engineering. What motivated you to get involved in this particular area? Coming from a country like Afghanistan, you know, where we have so much resources to build a good life and to have a sustainable life, you know, mm -hmm. one of those things is the energy. As I mentioned before, we have sun literally all year where I'm from and we have water, we have all these resources, mm. but we don't have the people who have the knowledge to put it in the right use or, you know, to use it in the right way. So always having that and seeing that, I think made me think about doing something. Also, you know, 
the situation, the climate change that we are facing, it looks scary, you know. Mm. We have to change our ways. We have to change the ways we live in order for our um, next generations to have a peaceful life or to have a good life, you know. We have to do things differently and we have to change things. Sure. So all these reasons and energy is obviously something we use literally all the time, every day in our lives, you know. So... Yeah, given all these reasons, I always wanted to do something like this. Um, finally, in 2019, I was lucky to get a scholarship to go to university because obviously I'm not, so I don't have refugee status. I can't apply for a student loan, and right, which also means I am classed as an international student. So the normal fee is nine grand for a home student for me it would be twenty thousand five hundred a year mm. which wow. i yeah. which i'll have wow. to pay from my pocket you know it's not like i can't even <laughs> apply for a loan so but yeah some amazing work around the uk going on in this particular subject that meant there was an opportunity for me to get this scholarship and i was successful terrific thank god Fantastic. I'm finally here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. So do you have aspirations as an actor now beyond your work with Phosphorus? Or is this something you want to keep doing alongside studying and eventually working as an engineer? Yeah, I think working with Phosphorus is obviously my passion. And I would love to be involved in this type of work, you know, all my life. Mm because it's something that I want people to know about. And unfortunately, we don't have many people talking about it or like spreading awareness about it. So definitely something that I would love to be involved in or I'd love to be doing all my life. But I think having a career in engineering is my main focus. Right. And that's what I want to do as my main career. Right. And what is your impression so far of the UK theatre scene? Do you go to the theatre a lot yourself? And if you do, what has your impression been? Yeah, I do go to the theatre, although it has been a year and a half that I haven't been now. So. Yeah, <laughs> same, yeah. same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that this global pandemic made me miss the most is being on stage but also going and seeing things. So the experience of theatre that I can never forget in the UK is going to Edinburgh, you know, going to Edinburgh Fringe Festival and seeing so many amazing shows on all the time, literally, you know, starting from morning till midnight and even 1am. It's amazing to see. It's amazing to see that arts and theatre is such a big part of this culture, you know, of the British culture. So, yeah, I mean, I love going to the theatre and I love going to see things and especially things that are for social change, you know, similar work to what we do. And I love being someone who is involved in theatre. So you are a fervent theatre goer. Mm. Have you found that the refugee experience in all its diversity is represented enough and authentically enough on our stages and screens? And what do you feel needs doing or changing for your voices to be enhanced and more broadly heard? I mean, personally, I don't think we are given enough opportunities to represent ourselves when it comes to theatre or TV shows. 
you know, mm-hmm. especially Afghans. So whenever I see an Afghan character being played by someone else, it's something that really annoys me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, we do have the potential and we do have people who can do it. So it's like that's something that I don't like and I don't think it should be in that way. You know, if it's an Afghan, it should be played by an Afghan. Yeah. If it's someone else, you know, whoever, whatever background, it should be played by a person from the same background, you know. Mm. And when it comes to refugees in general, I think not only in theatre, not only in arts, but even in political situations, you know, Mm -hmm. we are being talked about, but we are not given the opportunity to talk ourselves and Mm. like to give things from our point of view in in person yeah so things like starting from the parliament when there is problems and things being talked about refugees it's like other people talking about refugees and not giving the refugees a chance to represent themselves and talk about themselves and the same thing when it comes to the art when it comes to theater work it's Mm -hmm. i think there are assumptions that refugees don't want to tell their stories Mm. or the refugees might not be able to tell their stories but I think that's wrong you know that's not yes some people might not want to talk about things that have happened to them which is absolutely understandable you know if I don't want to talk about something I don't want to talk about something but that's normal Mm. that applies to everyone else that doesn't just apply to refugees you know that can be a case for normal British person they don't want to talk about their experience that's absolutely fine. Yeah. But there are other people who do want to represent themselves, who do want to talk about their stories. And I believe there are enough of us who would like to represent and tell their stories themselves. And in Phosphorus, I think we are the lucky ones who are given the platform to do that. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, I think there is the aspect of low expectations from this particular community when it comes to this. Right. And I've personally faced that, you know, when we do a show at the end of it, sometimes we have some ignorant people, I would say, coming up to us and telling us, you know, I don't know if that's what they wanted intentionally or not, but they say to us, oh, it was an amazing show. I didn't expect it. Mm. Right. So it's like, you know, it's, yeah. it's 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 implied in a way like I didn't expect it. Like, what do you expect? You know, like, <laughs> do you want me to go on stage because I'm a refugee and cry for you? Like, you know, look, oh, I'm a victim and like this and that. No. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's like that's not what we are. That's not who we are. You know, we're normal people. We have potential. We have talent. We have skills mm. that we can use. And like, you know. Sometimes they say like, oh, I didn't expect it to be funny or like they imply that they expected it to be a sad story. Yeah. And again, it's like, no, our lives, you know, we have a normal life. It's not all about sadness. It's not all about the tragic things that happen or that you might see in the media. That's not we all about, you know, there are more sides to it. Mm-hmm. And when you come here, you see it, we show it to you. So all that, you know, given all those reasons, I think, we don't get enough opportunities. Yeah, no, I would completely agree. So, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic that we find ourselves in right now have completely changed our lives. How has it impacted you professionally and personally? Obviously, you said you really miss the stage. 
what else has really changed for you this past year? Oh, a lot, obviously. <laughs> uh, because <laughs> it's a situation that, you know, we're all in it. So I think yeah. we can all understand how difficult or how challenging it is. So our last show was in January 2020. Yeah. And mm -hmm. since then, nothing much really happened. So yeah, it's something that I really miss mm. being on stage and like meeting my audience and talking to my audience after a show. And, you know, having that feeling of people coming up to you and asking you questions and being interested in your work and talking to you about your work. And also going around the country and meeting refugees in different places around the world or people like ourselves, you know, mm. those are the things that I really miss. But hopefully soon we are out of this and we are hoping to do more shows and create a new production. So let's see. But, you know, as well as acting and as well as doing workshops, we have a youth club for refugees who are new to the UK at the Unicorn Theatre. Mm -hmm. So we are an associated company. So we have a youth club for newly arrived refugees every Tuesday um, evening. And obviously when this global pandemic happened, we had to stop it and we had to go online. Mm -hmm. But a positive thing that happened in terms of that group is that now we have people not only from London, but from different parts of the country joining us. Mm. So I think, yeah, like as well as having so many negatives, there are some positives as well. So I think looking at that, finding those little things sometimes keep us going. The silver linings, yeah. Yeah. So the word migrant, just like the word refugee, encompass such a wide range of experiences and backgrounds but do you feel like there is a common denominator nonetheless something that unites all migrants and refugees yeah definitely i believe so i believe that there is there yeah, like obviously every single experience is different but there are common things that happened in the community or common things that we all experience as a community. As I mentioned before, the work we do with Phosphorus, we meet people and sometimes people say you just represented or you just told my story. So hearing those comments does make me think that, yes, there is a common thing between us. But Again, there are individual experiences of asylum seekers that need to be recognized, I think. You know, as I yeah. mentioned before about my project with Privacy International, so they are an amazing organization. So basically, this project was a campaign about the Home Office spying on asylum seekers. Hmm. So basically, what it is, is when you come to the UK as an adult, you get a bank card type of thing called Aspen card, where you get money put into your Aspen card by the home office. It's 30 something pound a week, which again is not very <laughs> much. And mm. a lot of debates about that. And what the home office do is that they spy on people. So they look at your card spendings and they see where you have used it and what you have used it for, God. you know, all those things and it's these stories often don't get recognized in my opinion so i think 
you know, doing that campaign where I had to act the story of someone else, because obviously I came as an unaccompanied minor. I took a different route to that. Mm. So I'm really proud to be involved in that. So things like that, when you hear, it's like, no, there are more to it. When you hear the word migrant, it's not all the same, or refugee or asylum seeker, it's not all Mm. the same. People experience different things, you know. So yeah. Yeah, and in a way there should be more emphasis on the differences because we just tend to put everyone in the same boat, really. Mm. Exactly. That word is often used as quite a blanket term. term, Yeah. uh, Very often, Mm. yeah. Mm. Mm. Exactly. And um, we touched on this a little bit earlier when Ben was asking you about Afghanistan, but when you hear the word home, what comes to your mind or to your heart? Yeah, as I said before, you know, it's obviously the first thing is my family and my lovely house in Afghanistan and my friends who I really miss and all the fun things that we did. So for me, I still feel like home is Afghanistan. I don't know, you know, when that feeling will change. Mm. But yeah, when I hear the word home, I still think of Afghanistan and all the things that I had as a child growing up in Afghanistan. You know, playing with the cows and feeding the cows and, (laughs) you know, chasing the goats and chasing the chickens. All (laughs) All those silly things that you have as a child, all those things that you do as a child, which obviously now... You think about it when I say it, it makes me laugh because it's like a bit cringe, but you know, <laughs> that, wow. that's what you do as a child, that's what yeah, you do as sure. a kid, you know. So, having a normal kid life, and well, you say Afghanistan is still home for you, but do you feel like living here has shifted your sense of identity somewhat? Like, do you recognize? any British traits about yourself? This is something we love to ask our guests. What is the most (laughs) British thing and the least British thing about you? (laughs) Oh, yeah, Um, definitely. I, yes, I think I'm involved in the British culture so much. And I would say more than I'm involved in Afghan culture at the moment, because obviously I live here. So the British things, you know, when when I heard that question, something that came in my mind when I started living independently, I bought a cheese toasty. Okay, so I bought a cheese toasty and I took it home. I think I saw a friend using it or I saw it in a shop. I don't know where the inspiration came from, but I bought one and I took it home. And then the next day, my friends came around. So they saw my cheese toasty and they were like, Oh, you bought a cheese toasty. <laughs> you are turning into an English boy. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, how, is that, how is that even related? <laughs> but it must be in some way. So they were like, basically, yeah, like, you know, telling me like, oh, I'm becoming an English boy. I'm becoming a British boy and I'm, I'm forgetting about my culture. And I was like, what are you talking about? That's not true. <laughs> but yeah, and something else, you know, I think, yeah, the love for Shepherd's Pie, I think mm-hmm. is something else, you know, wow, I just have yeah. so, I just love Shepherd's Pie. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I think that's something else that, you know, that comes in my mind. Yeah. But the least British things, I 
something that I find really boring. A lot of people <laughs> listening to this would call me a boring person, but I think, you know, something that I really don't like is football and watching yeah. football, mm. <laughs> <laughs> which, I, which I believe goes against a lot of British people's <laughs> likings, yeah. right? So yeah. I just, you know, my first experience, again, cricket was invented by England, right? It, it mm. is an English sport. It started from England. Um, but I just, I just love cricket. And my first experience of watching football was going to watch England versus Germany in Wembley Stadium. So I went with my friend. And I was like, okay, let's just give this a try and see how it goes. So for the whole two hours, we were just sitting there. And at the end of the game, there was a draw. There was no goals scored. And I was like, is this what I paid my money for? And is this why I watched two hours sitting here? I'm watching this game and nothing happened at the end. No one won or no one lost. So I was like, no, this is my first and last experience of football. I'm not watching football anymore. <laughs> so, so, yeah. so cricket, my God, I, I can't even begin to start to understand how cricket yeah. works. <laughs> no, it's like I, a very elaborate game. Yeah, but for me, you know, as someone, you know, being interested or knowing about this, it's, it's just more exciting because every single mm. ball, something happens. That's the thing. Mm. Whereas with football, mm. you're just running around and, everybody chasing the same ball and sometimes <laughs> nothing happens at the end of it so a lot of people listening to me would call me a boring person after <laughs> having this wow. um, so yeah and so just to finish, so what would you say your hopes are for the future? This is kind of a huge question, but what are your hopes for the future for yourself and then for society at large firstly you know given the circumstances we are at the moment I, I really hope and pray that we are out of this global pandemic as soon as possible and yeah. you know i hope that as well as the rich countries the poor countries get the vaccine soon as well yeah and you know, broadly speaking in, in terms of the refugees basically i really hope that one day no one has to think about being a refugee or becoming a refugee and leaving their countries. I really mm. hope that and pray for that day that, you know, that stops and mm. there is no refugees being produced. And in order for that to happen, I really hope the countries, you know, who are funding the war, the countries who are investing in wars like it's a business i hope they mm -hmm. they they realize and i hope they stop so we can all have a peaceful life and a peaceful world mm -hmm. where we live with love and where we don't see or we don't have an eye for for seeing the differences in our skin colors or religious views in terms of our sexual views or who we want to be you know i hope and pray for a world that is free from all those things that we face in today's world and in today's society. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Interestingly, a lot of people are talking about a future of climate refugees. So I just think yeah. it's wonderful that you are paving a career in sustainable energy because that is the Oh, future. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's something else, you know. I'm really 
grateful to be having this scholarship and this opportunity to do in this degree and i really hope you know i am one of the people who can make a difference in terms of the climate change so yeah and i hope we change we start to realize and we change our ways of living in yeah. order for future generations to have the life we have yeah so i hope it all becomes better one day yes. yeah absolutely Thank you so much, Said. It was just so wonderful to talk to you and thank you for your time and telling your story. It's a very important and inspiring one. Thank you guys for having me, for giving me the opportunity to come here and firstly to speak to you guys and also, you know, to be doing this this podcast. So yeah, I'm really grateful. Thank you. Thank you. To find out more about Said and Phosphorus Theatre, please check out the links in this episode's show notes. You've been listening to Migratives, a podcast produced by Woven Voices. Migratives is created and hosted by Nadia Cavell, Zachary Fall and Ben Weaver-Hinks. Our music is by Guy Hughes and our artwork is designed by Lucy Stapleton-Smith. To support the podcast, you can rate, review and subscribe on the platform of your choice. And to find out more about our work, follow us on social media or check out our website, wovenvoices.org.